So behind this episode is my need, my personal need to be able to put things in context and understand the history of it and what the thing is before I can even get to saying yay or nay or good, bad or any of that. And with so much of the last year being focused on pandemic and the virus and public health or what have you, there have been times when I've been kind of lost in the sauce, so to speak, and just not understanding. So one of the things that I wanted to do with the show and with this episode in particular was to talk about public health. And for that, we were able to have as a guest Aaron Shirley Ori, who is a public health advocate. She is also the daughter of healthcare pioneer, activist, and advocate, Dr. Aaron Shirley, who was also a MacArthur Fellow, also known as the MacArthur Genius Grant to help give us that context to understand the issues, what should be happening, what's working, what's not, and most of all, what should we be doing more of and where should we be doing more of it? So that's what's happening on this episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you for joining us. Next, Aaron Shirley Ori. Aaron Shirley Ori, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I am well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And I wanted to, when we were thinking about the first season of the show, one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about is just public health. Because of the pandemic, there's a spotlight on it, but I, I just think that we, and when I say we, I mean me too, so I'm throwing me in this, is I think there's so much that we just don't understand about the field and what is it, it's history or any of those things. And so you as a public health advocate wanted to have on just to just to get us up to speed. And so I will start with that is what is public health? So that's a loaded question because public health is so broad, but basically it's the science and art of preventing disease, promoting health and, and prolonging life, identifying where infectious diseases have originated and how to control diseases. It is huge and it's so broad because it goes from, I'm, my focus is health policy and management, but it goes from biostatistics to epidemiology to human behavior, uh, behavior health. I mean, it is so broad, but the basic of it is promoting health among populations. So if you look at a physician, a physician is usually treating a one person, a one patient, but public health is the control or the promotion of health among large populations. Got it. And so you, you said your focus is is in policy and, and management. What policy mean? Is that like legislative policy? Is it Yeah. And I took this route because I have always been involved in civic engagement. And I know that when we're trying to implement any type of intervention, any type of change in our communities, a lot of times the only way it can get done is if a policy is enacted. And so that's why my focus is health policy, because I want to, first of all, I'm in Mississippi. So we have the worst health outcomes. We have the worst 
education outcomes. We have the worst when it comes to everything in comparison to all the other states in the United States. And so my goal is once I complete my my doctorate is to use my expertise and try to take the politics out of everything that we're trying to do in Mississippi and use data to substantiate the changes that we need in this state and implement policies that will, you know, affect those changes. Got it. Got it. And let me back up a little bit on that. And so you're a Mississippian. You're born and raised in Mississippi? Born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. Okay. And did you pursue higher education in Jackson or did you, where'd you, where's sort of your educational path? So I went to Xavier University in New Orleans. I, uh, well, let me go back. When I was still in high school, I went to a summer program at Xavier and I went into a program that was focused on engineering. And so that's my background. My background is actually physics and electrical engineering. And so I went to Xavier to the summer program and I can remember this woman, a black female engineer came and spoke to us from NASA. And I was just impressed with her. I was like, well, this sister is bad. And I said, I want to be like her. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so that's how it influenced me to go into engineering. So I was in a, a dual degree program with Xavier in Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Okay. So I studied physics at Xavier and electrical engineering at Southern. And I got two bachelors in that program. Okay, so then you went from engineering and and how did you end up in public health or what's the sort of path there? So I was working as an engineer for Delphi Automotive, Delphi Packard Electric specifically. I was working in Clinton. And then at that time, my career goal was to ultimately be plant manager. I wanted to oversee an entire manufacturing facility. So I had mentors and they told me, okay, that's, you know, this is going to be your path. And so I went and got my master's in manufacturing management. And then my mentors told me, basically, I need to go to Warren, Ohio and work there and learn the business there because that's where the home office for Delphi Packard was located. So I had to go there and get the, and learn all about all of the different facilities there and everything that I did. And so while I was there, it was interesting. I found a church home there in Youngstown, Ohio. It was Rising Star Baptist Church. And one sermon, the pastor, it was Gary Frost. And he did a sermon. I can't even remember what it was about, but I remember leaving there saying, I'm in the wrong business. I'm doing the wrong thing. I felt that I, I knew then I was supposed to do something where I was supposed to be serving other people. I didn't know at that time exactly what that was, but I felt a shift in my spirit that engineering was my my path. I moved back to Mississippi and still was thinking that I was going to work in the manufacturing field, in the manufacturing sector. And then when I think it was, two, it was 2008, when the U.S. economy took a major hit and the housing crisis occurred, the major big three automotive manufacturers were trying to get a bailout from the Obama administration. All of that affected my job because the where I worked closed. And so at that time, I didn't have a job. I started a business, a medical staffing company. It was just something that I thought I could, that I wanted to do. And also at that time, I started working with my mother who had an after school program and my father who had started the Health Connect program. I started working with both of them. And so that work experience showed me public health 
firsthand. I mean, this was like I knew what public health was. I was like in the fire of public health. And this is where I started seeing how effective it can be when you're working in your community and helping your community members get to what they need, you know, for health. Well, that's that's a winding road. And I know some of those spaces because my my career actually started in manufacturing. So I was was in IT, but in Indianapolis area. And so I know Delphi and the, the whole GM sort of supplier thing. So that's interesting that you went there and then back to Jackson and, and through your parents, you started in the public health journey. But I think there's something that's really important to talk about in that that piece of it. So I'll just ask, who is Dr. Aaron Shirley? So Dr. Aaron Shirley is my late father. He was born in Gluckstadt, Mississippi in 1933. He's the youngest of eight. And my grandmother, his mother, basically told all of her children what their careers were going to be. And he didn't want to be a doctor. He wanted to be an engineer, ironically. But she told him he was going to be an engineer. I mean, a doctor. And so he went to Tougaloo College, met my mom there. They fell in love, got married. While uh, My mother was extremely smart. So she went to college at 15 years old. So she was already, she was two years ahead of my father and through her matriculation in college, although she was younger than him. So she had graduated by when he was still a college student. But anyway, they married and started a family. And so my father was a healthcare pioneer. He was one of the very few physicians in the state of black physicians in the state of Mississippi, where I work currently at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He was the first black resident here. He broke the, the barrier. And so he became he did his pe- pediatric residency at the University of uh, Mississippi Medical Center. But he literally traveled the state of Mississippi. He spent although he did his when he finished medical school, they, they, he went to Meharry. And so they moved back to Mississippi and he started a practice in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And at that time, like I said, there were very few black physicians in the state. And so he would travel. He would take two days a week to travel to the Mississippi Delta, which is a very impoverished area where he would just go and see do house calls and make see patients there. And he would say, you know, a lot of times they didn't have money to pay him. He didn't care. They gave him beans, greens, or allowed him to fish on his and their property or whatever. That was their compensation for his medical care. So that's a little bit about Dr. Aaron Shirley. That's really remarkable. And so when you say he was the first resident at the um, Mississippi Medical Center, so being the first, a lot of times is not, you know, it sounds good now, and we're very appreciative of any Black person who's been the first, but going through it at the time is not an easy task. Did he talk about that at all? He did talk about that because the hospital was separate but equal. And although it wasn't, it was separate but equal. And so they had the colored side and the white side. I mean, he pretty much... During his time here, I'm going to say he was here in 65, 66 in that area to 71 or 70. Well, anyway, almost every black child that was born here, he delivered because all of, he had to see all the black patients. <laughs> white patients. White patients didn't want him to see them. But I remember him telling me that. So they had, a you know, separate bathrooms. They had separate everything, separate places where they would eat. And he, I remember him 
telling me that the physician over pediatric, the, the over pediatric residency asked him, you know, what are some of the things that we can do to make it better here? Because he said when they would go eat, there was literally a wall in the cafeteria and the black folks sat on one side and the white folks sat on the other side. And he told them, you can start by taking, removing this wall. And he was saying it physically and metaphorically because he was like, there is still a huge wall here that's keeping us separate. And so if you want to make a start making a change, you have to start breaking down the walls institutionally that's in this system. So, yeah, he had a lot of stories about his experience being the first black here. So with that, there are a couple of things in there that I'm just kind of tossing around is, is that his experience as a young doctor and going to the Delta and and serving. Right. And then his experience in pursuing his education and craft, that segregation kind of tied into a lot of the work that he did, at least some of the things behind it. And you can certainly articulated more. And you mentioned one of those with Health Connect. What is or was Health Connect? So Health Connect was a program that he started that basically connected patients with resources in the community. And what he learned about this whole system was he went to Iran with Dr. Muhammad Shabazi. They went to Iran to see how they were utilizing community health houses. And so in the areas where they were in Iran, they were rural. And he said, basically, they had a community health house, which is a place where people in the community would just go because they were so rural, they didn't have access to physicians. But they had what they call community health workers. And those community health workers were trained to be able to do little things like checking your blood pressure, checking your glucose levels and things of that nature, giving you information about your health and then helping you monitor whatever your um, your numbers that you needed to be mon- that needed to be monitored just little things like that that would keep people from having emergent issues because they're main- they're looking at their numbers regularly and what they would do is try to get them into a doctor or physician somewhere further away from where they were well he saw that in Iran and saw how it helped it worked and he said well shoot we can do this in Mississippi this is so I mean this is a Similar concept, but we could duplicate this. And so what he did when we came back to Mississippi, they developed a curriculum for community health workers. And the thing about community health workers, why they're so key is because they are who people in their community trust and know, as opposed to someone that they don't know that comes in. It may come across a little elitist. And so if a community health worker is knowing you all their life and they're saying, come on now, Miss Jones, you know you're supposed to do this or you're supposed to do that. Patients tend to listen to that and adhere to what the community health workers are saying. And so that's what happened here. So they de- he developed a curriculum along with Dr. Shabazi and they had a basically a certificate program to train people to become community health workers. And they would basically inform patients on programs that they might not even know about. Say, for instance, you are on Medicaid and you don't even realize that you can get some prescription um coupons or something like that, or you don't know a a physician that accepts Medicaid in your community, but your community health worker will find out that, oh yeah, Dr. So-and-so, they take Medicaid, you can go over here. So they are very valuable because they have their feet and ears and and eyes in the community. They see exactly what's going on and they kind of share that information to community members and connect with physicians in the community. You know, so 
when I was doing some background for this, there were a couple of things that came to mind that you, you talked about with the community. There's a doctor, and I should know his name, who's currently active in Oakland, who has a, um, a clinic. And I saw or I heard him on NPR. And, and he's Black. He's in Black community in Oakland. He's a physician and all of those things, well-educated man. But his language, even in the interview, was one definitely of the community. And in this particular zip code, they were doing a really good job of battling COVID at this time. And this is sort of early on in terms of getting the numbers down, getting people tested and other things. The other piece is, is early on again, in West Africa, there was some left lessons learned from fighting Ebola about having people who are a part of tribes and local communities that people trust or what have you. And it seems like so much of um, there's, there's, there's just this gap of, of knowledge and information, like we're talking over each other, around each other. So Health Connect was, seems like it was closing a lot of that gap. Yes, and that's exactly, it, it doesn't exist anymore, but yes, that's what it did because say for instance, the Health Connect program worked with certain hospitals in the area to help reduce hospital readmission rates. And this was important because under the Affordable Care Act, hospitals could be penalized for patients who are being readmitted to the hospital within 30 days of discharge. The concept is if they're coming back within 30 days, then you didn't do your part. Okay. Well, Health Connect utilized community health workers who, when these patients were discharged, they would call them from within 24 to 48 hours of discharge just to follow up with them, see if they're okay, did they get their medications, all of that information, and then made sure they came in to their follow-up visit. So this is really key because Research shows that if you don't come for your follow-up visit, you're more likely to end up back in the hospital. So your follow-up is to come back with your, your doctor and make sure that everything that that doctor prescribed or said for you to do, you adhere to it and that it's working okay. Well, if you miss that, then you're probably going to end up back in the hospital. So we, the Health Connect program utilized community health workers that track these patients down and basically, and they had a rapport with them, they had a relationship with them, if they, they will find out well, I don't have transportation to go get my uh, my prescriptions. Well, Medicaid provides a transportation for that. So the community health worker would navigate that for them. So this is what you're right. There is a gap that a lot of times in some communities where, you know, our physicians might just if, you, if anyone has ever been hospitalized for anything and they come in there and say you about to be discharged and you got to go through all this paperwork and they just run pretty quickly through what you need to do and oh your next appointment is such and such. And if you don't have that rapport, that relationship or the comfort level of saying, wait, slow down. Can, can you just tell me, wait, what does this mean? OK, where can I get this? You know, because they just trying to get you out of there. That's sometimes, you know, miss a lot of information once you're discharged, which means you might end up not following what they provided for you and you end up back in the emergency room. So that's what the Health Connect did. It connected the community health worker in the community to make sure that these patients were not readmitted unnecessarily. Did, did Health Connect, was it successful in terms of reducing the readmissions? It was. It was. So one thing about my father, he had relationships with everybody and that's how he was able to get a lot of things done. So he literally got a memorandum of understanding or a contract with 
United Healthcare. And so United Healthcare basically provided us with their most expensive patients because they kept going into the hospital, to the emergency room. Their list of the most expensive patients consisted of 80% of their cost, but it was 10%. Yeah, 80% of their cost, but 10% of their patients. So they were extremely expensive. And so ended up developing a program where once these patients were admitted to the hospitals, our community health workers would get the census every day. And if they saw that patient on that list, they were tracking them down. And they were like, okay, so Mr. Mark, he's back in the hospital, so we're going to make sure he doesn't come back. So basically, we were able to show and save, and it was a cost sharing program, basically. So whatever the savings was to the insurance company, it was shared between Health Connect and the insurance company. So I have to ask, I mean, it sounds like a great program and I'm really inspired by, and I think it's something that we all should learn. Like most people wouldn't think that, especially being in the United States, that I would go to Iran to find a solution that would work here. I mean, we have a very, if it's not done here, then it's not going to work kind of attitude here in the United States. But that's that's one admirable. But I have to ask, so you said, if I heard you correctly, that it's not existing now. If it was working really well like that, and what what, what happened? So at the time when... Leadership changes. So the leadership changed at United Healthcare, mm. and for whatever reason they didn't see the benefit or wanted to do something else or focus on something else. That tends to happen because a lot of times it's you know people have their own ideas of what they want to do or own goals or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And yeah. so when this person retired and moved on, it just didn't it didn't continue. <laughs> But again, that's the same with uh, the hospitals too. the hospitals uh, leadership change. So this was the thing. So at the couple of the hospitals that we were working with, they saw it and they saw how it was working. But when they move on to something else, then, you know, it just kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah, that's that's really unfortunate. It seems like whether it's in education or health or or any of those things that generally serve the public, a lot of times we have programs that are working and they're working and they're still young, but we don't give them time to even blossom or what have you, because the, it it seems sometimes that the goals are not focused on the people being served, but just on some something else. And I, you know, that's that's a, another show for another time. Now, is the Health Connect, was that a part of the Jackson Medical Mall or is that something different? It was separate. It was a separate entity. It was a lot. So he did a lot. So um, and this was at the uh, start of the Obama administration and passing of the Affordable Care Act. And so at that time, he not only did he start the Health Connect program, he helped start an accountable care organization in Mississippi that was funded by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And so that was a pro, uh, the Affordable Care Organization was a group of black physicians in Mississippi, in rural Mississippi. They were federally qualified health centers, rural health centers, and black private practices in Mississippi that came together to do this same thing. So like I said, we were doing this following the United Healthcare patients. We were also following these physicians' patients. So whenever their patients were admitted, we would get their census and make sure that they knew that they were admitted and all of these things. Well, that was funded and that funding no longer, uh, it, it just ended 
it was over a certain period of time. So after that ended, it just kind of died out. Yeah. You know, Mississippi, like Georgia, has huge gaps in terms of rural hospitals that have closed. And there's even a chart uh, just I saw in Georgia, and I would imagine Mississippi may be the same, that they're counties that don't have an actual practicing physician. Now, let me say that it might be one that's adjacent or what have you, but it just seems like something's really wrong. We have I think nationwide, even a nursing crisis or what have you. To tie this into to your work, how does public health shape even in making sure, if it does, that we have enough professionals in the system, whether they be physicians, nurses, public health people? I mean, what can be done to sort of get more people into the field? So one of the things is incentives. So like when my father went to, and of course this was in the 50s, but when he went to school and and not some decades afterwards, they could get funding that would, you know, pay for you to go to school and you would service an underserved area for like five years, so to speak. I don't think that happens anymore. Because you could know about the debt that medical students have and nursing students, you know, that's well enough, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars worth of debt, at least for a medical student. And so I think if programs like that were back in place where if you fund me to go to medical school and then I pay you back by serving in a rural area for five years, that would help out tremendously. But also, I think that we need to put more emphasis on primary care. Primary care physicians do not get paid as much as our specialty physicians, but primary care is where it all starts. And so if we want to get abreast of, you know, chronic illnesses and all of that to keep you from going to see a cardiologist or a nephrologist or all of these specialties, you need that primary care attention. And I think that a lot of the, well, I know a lot of physicians are the primary care uh, practice is not as big as it is because as it as it used to be because more people are going into the specialty area because you get paid more and it's a little bit more prestigious and all of that. But also community health workers and another thing that we need to we need broadband access in rural communities so they can utilize telehealth. So for example, if you can't get people to work in those facilities those areas of rural areas, well, at least if you had broadband, they can seek telehealth through their cell phone or their iPad to a neighboring county or what have you in that way. And so I just did a project on that with Alabama, Georgia and Mississippi. There are counties in those rural areas that just don't even have broadband access, let right. alone having a practice. So if you know that there's a f- huge physician shortage in that area, you can if you can focus on getting broadband in there and getting policy that will allow you to see a physician on your cell phone that will be reimbursable and all of that, that will make a huge difference too. That's 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 really interesting. And it's interesting, especially with your focus uh, being sort of policy and management, is we have right now the infrastructure bill being held up and I don't know if this is being held up in the House or the Senate is a tennis match or wherever, but it looks like it's not going anywhere and it's whittled down, whittled down, whittled down. And one of the key components around that is 
broadband access for rural rural America. And it just seems like so much of our conversations are not tied together because from my perspective, that case of we could have better health access and better health outcomes just with technology would it wouldn't solve all the issues, but it would would solve some of it. So that's that's really it. Also, I would tell you, I heard numerous governors talk about, and we'll get to this later in terms of the vaccine and and testing or what have you, talk about you should consult with your your family doctor or what have you. I know plenty of people who are well-educated and and have means that don't have primary care physicians or family doctors. And so when I hear that, my head is about to explode because it's like people don't have doctors. And I'm not saying that that's good, but it it just seems like we're really missing just sort of what, what could be or what the actual problem is. Oh boy, you just hit the nail on the head. So (laughs) it is, again, primary care is not as, there's not a priority on primary care financially when it comes for, even with reimbursement rates and things of that nature, when, when uh, insurance companies, they don't want to pay primary care. And so it's really frustrating because again, that's the key to everything. You know, you don't just go to a cardiologist without seeing a primary care provider, right. but back to your point, as far as saying that a lot of people don't have primary care, a, a lot of it might be because you also have a lot of those, I say pop-up clinics, these clinics that are popping up in, in, in urban areas and yeah, in urban areas <laughs> where yeah. you don't really have a, you just really go in there when you get really, really sick or, you know, you might have flu-like symptoms and you need something or what have you. And you still don't have that relationship with that physician there because you just go on for whatever reason. I, I just think that we missed the gap. I mean, we missed the, we missed so much without putting all of the emphasis and on primary care because, I mean, even with nurse practitioners and primary care physicians, they're the gatekeeper to everything else. And I think that they need to be elevated, you know, not they kind of frowned upon, I guess, in the medical community because, you know, you're I'm a cardiologist. I do surgeries. I do this. Right. You know, it's almost right. like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you the cream on the crop. <laughs> yeah, we need more people doing the work. We need fewer stars and more people doing the uh, doing the actual work. But, you know, sort of you, you mentioned even in urban, I, I do think that, well, I believe, I know that there are some historical things, it, just things that have happened, in, whether there's institutions. So one, the institution of slavery, right? Mm-hmm. And I heard, or I think it was maybe I read or something from your father talking about the concentration of Black people in Mississippi who still live close to the river, which is a legacy of slavery because that's, you know, soil rich and where it's best for for cultivation and those kinds of things. In urban environments, you will see fewer healthcare professionals, clinics, access to good, good foods, food deserts or what have you. All of those things can help. And that's a legacy of redlining and segregation. We think of segregation as like just this sort of I'm living, you know, where I want to live or, you know, it's just like, you know, I'm just around my people. But it's really a lot more insidious than that because you have people that are underserved. And to that end, 
to that end, to to sort of to, to bring it to where we are, talk to me about specifically the state of 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 black people in healthcare in terms of both those serving and those being served. And you 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 started school at Xavier, which is an absolute factory for top, not high quality people across all of the disciplines within healthcare. How do we get more Xavier's? How do we get more people? <laughs> right? How do we get more Xavier's? I don't know if that's the answer, but let's start there. How do we, again, just to go back to, listen, we need more, but to talk about Black people in the field on the serving side, and we'll come back to the being served after that. So we need to start more pipelines. We need to start pipelines early, like in middle school. One of the things I will say that at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, where I work, I work in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior, and the chair of the department has taken a very large stance on increasing the diversity of the makeup of medical students coming to the medical school. And so his thing, he recognizes that although the state of Mississippi is about 38 percent black, the medical student population is probably only about 8% Black. So he's like, okay, we, our school needs to look like at least the, the state in which we are serving. And I think that's the, that should be the case everywhere. And so what he, uh, he put residents in charge of creating a pipeline program with the high schools here. And they have a, they have a summer program of high school students that's coming here over the summer and seeing what it is like, to, what, it, what you need to get into medical school, what type of work you can do, all the different disciplines and all of that nature. Well, all of these schools, all of these institutions of higher learning, especially HBCUs, need to have a pipeline of middle school students, high school students where they come during the summer. I mean, that's how I was exposed to engineering and Xavier because I went to a summer program at Xavier. And I think that will make a world of difference of, of exposing our young folks to what the opportunities are. A lot of people don't know a personally a doctor that to talk to and can learn about what it takes to get into medical school and all of that type of stuff. So if you have, I mean, that's something that I would say all HBCUs should do for every whatever their top discipline of study is at their school. They should have a pipeline coming through from their public schools in the area that's right there in, the, in their same block, <laughs> so to speak. I couldn't agree more. And listen, I am not just partial to HBCUs. I'm an advocate, an evangelist, or what have you. But I, I think it's a it's a missed opportunity for the country when we don't properly fund the HBCUs and have the right focus. Because that's uh, again back to that trust. I mean, Jackson State being right there, Blackburn, right, and then Southern, where you went, Scotlandville. I mean, listen, uh, my family school is Alabama A&M and, you know, Oakwood, Black seven-day event school. I mean, it's, we have the resources there. We just need to, to tap into them uh, a little more. I want to switch gears a little bit. I didn't want to spend a lot of time on the, um, the pandemic because that's just one thing and we're kind of flooded with it. But I also think it would be remiss if we didn't talk about it. Where has public health been effective during the pandemic? <sighs> so, <Uh-oh. laughs> where's Uh-oh. been effective? <laughs> Uh-oh. Let me just uh, say that 
I would say that community public health on the state level or on local levels have been effective in messaging and taking a stance at doing virtual town halls like with HBCUs. Jackson State did virtual town halls throughout the pandemic early with our state health director and other physicians in the in the area. So I would say it's been very beneficial on the state and local levels because they work with organizations, whether it's Greek letter organizations, NAACP, all these different organizations on a uh, local level have been doing town halls and letting getting the information out there, debunking all the myths that are, have been out there about the vaccine or about COVID itself and utilizing black physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners that are relatable to the community that they're talking to. Nationally, I think it was a, a train wreck, <laughs> especially when you had the World Health Organization saying something, then you had CDC saying something, and yep. then people challenging Dr. Fauci, who's been in infectious disease for most of his career, and it, and it was politicized. I know. And that was just ridiculous. I mean, it's just ridiculous that you would politicize anything pertaining to a pandemic. <laughs> so. I would say the, the the best part of it came on the local levels. Yeah, you know what's crazy is when I hear people just questioning Dr. Fauci, you know, listen, I am a, a sports fan or what have you, but if Jerry Rice said something about catching the football and I said something <laughs> and you actually listened to me, I'm gonna say, what what are you thinking? I mean, you know, we have people who become experts on things and we we have people who've studied and experienced it. And because Dr. Fauci's been through AIDS, all of those things, I mean, he's spent his, his, his life's work in that, but, and he's not the only voice. And I think it's really insightful. And in what you said is, is that I have seen county health departments doing really well. And I've seen mayors, various mayors, doing really well, but boy, it just seems like we just missed the mark nationally or, or having a collective response. And then I remember, I guess it was last year, April, May, June or whatever, when the World Health Organization was saying, yeah, you, you should be wearing a mask. We fought that for a long, in fact, we're still fighting it, but I mean, we fought certain things that the rest of the world was doing. But you know what? what's ironic about, let yeah. me just say this, because yeah, what's ironic about the mask wearing China, people in China have been wearing masks for years because of pollution, right? right. So it's, it's to the point where it's saving your life. Yep. And when people was questioning, well, I can't breathe. I'm like, okay, but people in China are wearing masks and polluted, uh, you know, when their atmosphere is full of pollution, they've been doing this for years. So yep. <laughs> wearing a mask right now to save your life, I mean, come on. Yeah, no, it's I, not I know, that big a deal. Just a lot of things like that. Let me ask specifically, though, and, and what I don't want to do, because the parlay in all blue is I am like Lil Duvall. I am not going back and forth. You know, this is not a this is not a show where we bring on, you know, people just to cause controversy. But so I'm, I'm saying that to say I want to ask about resistance to the vaccine, vaccine hesitancy and that kind of thing. And I want to carve out all of the political nonsense, that whole population of that. I, I, I'm, I'm just not going there. I'm really talking about 
people who are genuinely hesitant and and then even more in black and brown communities where you have still sort of resistance to it. What's the opportunity there? So first of all, the opportunity, so we missed the mark in the medical community and in the public health community a long time ago because we don't have relationship with these communities, so to speak. So for example, research already, there's data that shows that People of color are treated differently when they go to the doctor. They're not respected as far as their pain levels. Physicians won't prescribe. They will more likely prescribe something for a white person over a person of color, meaning that they literally think that black folks can withstand more pain than white people. That is in in the research. So when you have uh, communities that already are distrustful of the system or or their medical provider or their experiences, that alone is going to cause some hesitancy. And including, historically speaking, when you talk about the, you know, the Tuskegee experiment where, you know, so many black men were weren't even given the treatment for their syphilis. In Henrietta Lacks, you know, yeah. her sales were taken from her, unbeknownst her. And even in Mississippi, I mean, if you know anything about Fannie Lou Hamer, yes. you know that she was basically sterilized without her permission, without her knowledge. You know, things of that nature causes a lot of uh, hesitancy. And so when you don't acknowledge those things and try to grow and I mean, kind of try to heal from it, then no one is going to trust you when it comes to trying to say you need to take this or you need to take that. But what has helped is once black people learn from black folks, yeah. people that they trust, people in their community and share with them what the vaccine does and also explain that it did not happen overnight. There is a SARS one, you know, this is COVID two. And so there was a COVID, there are COVID viruses. This is just a, a different, this COVID-19, this is a different strain, so to speak. And so it's not like the, the vaccine was created overnight, but once people taught you that and it yeah. came from a trusted voice in their community, people were more welcoming of the virus and I, I mean of the um, vaccine. And also people had very, um, if you have underlying health conditions, which most African-Americans do, whether it is, you know, diabetes, hypertension, kidneys, whatever the case may be, you do have a concern about what I'm, you know, putting in my body. Is it going to interact with what I something that I already have? But again, it had the voice, the messaging had to come from trusted sources that look like us to make you understand and recognize that, okay, yeah, my doctor just he my doctor just got the vaccine and and clearly he's not going to take something that is going to be harmful to me. So and I think that's when the public health community nationally was trying to just get it out there and get the vaccine. They didn't know how to culturally appropriately <laughs> right. share that messaging to people of color. Yeah, now so a couple of things there the Mother sister Fannie Lou Hamer is amazing for so many reasons. And I think it's just within the past few years that I became aware of the sterilization of Black women in the earlier part of the previous century and throughout the South as a form of population control. So, you know, listen, while I am someone who is 
I've been vaccinated and all of those things. But I will say for all black people, the hesitancy is well earned. I get it. it, it it's not oh, like yeah. we got <laughs> here overnight and it wasn't for good reason. But I, I agree with you. And I, I think what I'm hearing and taking away from this is that just just overall is that we need trusted voices and trusted voices in health in in the community to drive health outcomes. So I think that that is is really important. And unfortunately, not all of them are MacArthur genius like Dr. Aaron Shirley. But the more that we can, <laughs> we can the more that we can uh, get through Tougaloo and Xavier and, and Meharry, um, <laughs> the the better. Okay, so. I want to switch here just sort of as we're we're coming to a close and wind it down and just ask some questions. And thank you. This has been great, by the way. It's just so much here to, that I think our audience can take from this and, and begin to think about and think about who you're voting for and, and not just on the national level, but a local level, because I think policy, like you said, drives a lot of these things. So we always end with a few questions. And I want to, to start with this one first with you. What is it that is beautiful about Mississippi that people from the outside don't get? We we know all of the things about last and this and all of those things, but what, what is it that people miss about Mississippi? So Mississippi does have a warmth about her, a very loving and warm, friendly, kind beauty about her. And also the music, the culture, the food, it's very inviting. It's very loving. You know, it's like if you're in those spaces, even with black and white people, when they're together in the spaces of music or food or culture, it's a very nice and pleasant environment to be in. And I think that when people don't know that, if if you don't, if you've never visited that's right, right. And so there's always the, the historical aspects of it, the negative sides of it that people think about. But once you come and a lot of people, even black or white, when they come and they a lot of people just can't leave Mississippi. You know, <laughs> they yep. think they're going to be here just for a few years for, for a work assignment or whatever. They stay because that is they do experience that warmth. Yeah, no, that's 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 good. I like that. What does it mean to live well? It means you have access to whatever it is that you need, whether it is health care, education, food, that you are not having to stress and you're not trying to figure out whether I'm going to buy medication or I'm going to buy groceries. Yeah, I know that's extreme, but I think that uh, a lot of people deal with that. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're, you're so right there is that because the key word in what you said is access to what you need. I mean, it's it's just we we should we should be striving, I think, for a society where at least people have access to what they need. And there's so many people that just don't have those basics. So appreciate that. All right. So now we're going to end with something that's actually really important. It's lighter in terms of the question, but it's really, really important. So you grew up in Jackson. Xavier, Tougaloo, Meharry. So you, you've got a lot of, of HBCU experience. Your husband's Mississippi Valley State. So you've got a lot of 
HBCU experience. And because you're a guest, if you get this answer right, because there is a right answer, then <laughs> we'll just end it there. Peace out. But if you get it wrong because you're a guest, I'm just going to, you know, just say, you know, it is what it is. And we'll, we'll go from there. So first off, all the HBCU bands are the best in the country. So when I, I so I don't have to say HBCU. I'm just going to say who has the best band in the country. You know what? I, and and I just have to say that <laughs> I um, it's a sunny boom on the south. All right, <laughs> it's a sunny. It is. Yes. It's, it's Jackson State. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Southern grad, and the human jukebox is something major and something to contend with, but it's, it's Sunny Boom. Mm-hmm. And, and I say that because I have, like I said, I grew up here. I danced here. <laughs> Even as a little girl, yeah. I danced with the, uh, a dance team that would dance what Jackson State will play for us. So I've been, I have that ear yeah. since a little girl. And it is, it's the boom. <laughs> nah. You know what? It, it is the boom. And and I tell people that, and and listen, we as a culture have a lot of good bands. So the, the human jukebox. When I was in school, Prairie View didn't have a good band, but they had to battle bands here in Atlanta. Um, it was, it's been about a year because the pandemic got shut down. I mean, their band is really good now. I mean, the Ocean of Soul, historically, or what have you. Um, I hope I said fam you. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of good bands, but the boom <laughs> is consistent. And so we appreciate you. And I, I, I want to thank you so much for, for being candid about everything and then, and especially about <laughs> the boom. But so we, we really appreciate you. And, this has been great to have you and all the best to you and anything. And, and is there, is there anything that you would leave us with? If there was one thing that you would want to say to a person that doesn't have um, a primary care physician or, or what have you, what's, what's the best thing that they could do right now? If they have insurance, Look and see who are their providers or who was in their network and get them a primary care physician. And I've been telling I have friends who have not do not have a primary care physician and don't go regularly. You need to go to the doctor every year and just get a physical. Your insurance care covers a well visit. It's called a well wellness exam or what have you. Things you find out that you don't you your your numbers may be off the charts and you don't even know. So you need to just you need to go and have that relationship. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. And we'll leave it there. Aaron, Shirley, Ori, you've been a great guest. And thank you for joining us here at the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon or Stitcher, wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite, follow us or subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.